All right, well, welcome. I'm Pastor Tommy. I'm really glad that you're joining us this morning. If this is your first time or maybe you haven't been with us in a while, um, we've been going through our sermon series on the book of Romans. Um, and last week we finished up chapter 10 as we looked at how accessible salvation is when the gospel is being preached, when it's being proclaimed, and how then it is our responsibility as Christians to make that salvation accessible by further preaching and proclaiming the gospel. It was a really sweet time. We got to send out our students very practically from that sermon into uh, the mission field to proclaim and preach the gospel. So excited to hear about um, that as they come back next week. If you take a step back then, what you can see is how chapter 10 fits into the flow of 9 through 11. This is a a kind of a larger chunk of scripture, um, and these chapters collectively deal with the reality that many of Paul's uh, contemporaries had, had, Jewish contemporaries, had uh, the gospel being preached to them, but they didn't believe in Christ. And so one of the questions that we should be asking is like, what are we to make of this? I think what happens a lot of time is we read through uh, Romans, we read through chapter 8, which is arguably one of the most beautiful, incredibly potent, and encouraging chapters in maybe all of the Bible. And then you get to 9, and I think maybe you skim through it a little bit. Maybe you pull out some of those verses from chapter 10. You definitely flip through 11, and then you really focus back in on chapter 12. Everyone knows chapter 12 of Romans, which is where we're going to be next week. And I think one of the main reasons um, that that people tend to skip through uh, 9 through 11 like this is uh, because we're not Jewish, most of us, which is very reasonable. Like, Paul really dives deep into trying to understand how God is fair and just in his relationship to the Jews, how God has interacted with the Jews in the past, how God will interact with them in the future. But for those of us who are not ethnically Jewish, which I would imagine is the majority of us in this room, this might seem a little irrelevant, Um, but it's not, Mercy House. It's not irrelevant, and here's why it's not irrelevant. I'm going to use an an illustration. Imagine that you are an orphan, okay? You you are 12 years old. Um, You have no mom. You have no dad. You have no hope for a future at all, and and a man comes and says, hey, I'd like to adopt you into my family. I would like to be your father, and and you can become my beloved child. Now, that's like a really intense first meeting with a guy, but this, I have been an orphan, so I have experienced this. Uh, This is good news. This is great news. You you agree, because as an orphan, this is all you've ever wanted. You want to be able to have a family, someone to love you and care for you. But as you move into the house of your new family, you, you look around. The house is massive, And you notice that there are lots of bedrooms, but all of them are empty. And and you come to learn that this man has had 12 other biological children who have all run away from home. And you're the only child in the house. If this actually happened, you would be a little bit concerned, at least curious, like, what happened to this family? Where is everyone? What did I get myself into? Mercy House, we should care about what happened to Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters and even other ethnically Jewish people alive today because we as Christians have been adopted into God's family, but a large portion of God's original family are not at home with their father. And we should wonder, what happened? And what is going to happen? And we honestly should wonder what it means about God and even our relationship with God if his original offspring are nowhere to be found. And chapters 9 and 11 are really important in helping us understand these things better. So with that, let me pray for us one more time before we jump into the text. 
Father, you are the God of all generations, from Adam to Christ and on to the end of time. God, we acknowledge that parts of the Bible can be tricky sometimes to understand, and so we pray this morning for your help. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which does the supernatural work of revealing knowledge to us. And so, God, would you unblind us this morning? Would you unblock our ears? Would you soften our hearts so that we may see and hear and receive your word as it is spoken to us this morning? We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. We've got a lot of scripture to run through here, starting in verse 16 of chapter 10. I encourage you to have your Bibles open. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath your chairs. Starting in verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask you, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will, nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have, been shown, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So after Paul lays out the accessibility of salvation through the gospel in chapter 10, uh, and then consequently the necessity of preaching that gospel to make salvation accessible to all people of all nations, Paul circles back to his unbelieving Jewish brothers and sisters, and he points out, as he has already in the book of Romans, that some have not believed. And so the question we should be asking is, why have they not believed? And Paul first uh, asks this, um, and, and, and it, it's because, he asks, is it because they have not heard? You see that in verse 18, the first part. And he lets us know as quickly as he asks the question that it's not because they haven't heard. They, they've most certainly heard about Jesus, if not heard Jesus himself speaking during his ministry. More than this, though, the gospel wasn't invented in Jesus' ministry. It was something that God the Father had in, had in mind before time even began. This was always the way that God would redeem his people back to himself, and it's been revealed to the Jewish people through God's word. So over and over again, we see promises and prophecies from God through his word that a redeemer would one day come, that someone would, would bring restoration and healing who would be the ultimate atonement for the sins of God's people, and this man would be the, the Messiah, the Christ, the Jews were not in unbelief because they didn't hear about Christ. They were, in fact, the first to hear about his coming. As early as Genesis 3, as you're reading through the Old Testament, immediately after Adam and Eve sin, God promises his solution when he's talking to Satan. In Genesis 3, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this is speaking of Jesus, he shall bruise your head. He's talking to Satan. And you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophetic word that we have about Jesus who would one day destroy Satan's sin and death. In Kevin DeYoung's The Biggest Story Bible Storybook, that's literally the title, The Biggest Story Bible Storybook, DeYoung rightly refers to Jesus from this point on throughout the rest of the book with this awesome nickname. He calls Jesus the Serpent Crusher. 
in this children's book. We love it. The, the Jews weren't in unbelief because they didn't know. It, it was actually foretold in the third chapter of their Holy Scripture. Then Paul moves on in verse 19. He asks, are the Jews in unbelief because they didn't understand what was happening? Or maybe they didn't see it coming in the way that it was playing out. And Paul says, no, that's not the case either. He uses two quotes from Moses and Isaiah to tell us that God had telegraphed this plan in detail. He didn't hide it or, or make it confusing, but in speaking of the gospel, God revealed through Moses that the gospel would bring about a jealousy in the Israelites. God told them what it would look like when Jesus came, that they would be brought to anger, which is why uh, there is vicious and violent persecution of the church, and, and that is underway as Paul is writing this right here. And it wasn't just like an, an allergic reaction by the Jews. It was foretold by God. God would use the Gentiles, a, a foolish nation, which means basically a, people who don't know um, or don't fear God. So he's taking these Gentiles who are a foolish nation to make the Jews angry. That's what he's telling them. We'll see later on in this passage why God is doing that, but it's also foretold in Isaiah that this would happen. Look at verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. The point Paul is making here is that this was the plan. Not only did God know about Israel's unbelief ahead of time, but he knew about the future belief of the Gentiles, a belief that is initiated by God toward those Gentiles, and those Gentiles wanted nothing to do with the God of the Jews. They weren't seeking, they were not asking for God, but God showed himself to those people and to many of us here in this room. And so the unbelief from God's people during Paul's time is not an emergency that God needs to respond to, nor is it something outside of his control and even his plan. This isn't the first instance of Israel's unbelief. They, they struggle repeatedly through their long and messy history. But it wasn't as if God ever grew bitter or tired of that. Look at his heart in verse 21. It says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The image is of a father holding out his hands and his arms. He's beckoning his children to come back to them, to, to back to him since the very beginning of his relationship with his people. But maybe things have changed. To use our illustration before, if those in God's original family aren't home within the house, what is God's disposition toward those who still have not come home? Has he maybe changed his mind or his heart now that they have rejected his son, which is his ultimate display of love to them? This is the question that Paul addresses next. Look at uh, the beginning of chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people uh, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. 
chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Did God shut and lock the door to his house? Did he tell his children that they are dead to him now, they need to find another place to live? Absolutely not. This is what Paul is saying. Paul gives two examples to help us understand that God hasn't rejected his people. The, the first is very personal because it's his own personal testimony. Like God hasn't rejected his people because Paul is an example of a Jewish person, and Paul is Jewish through and through. He, he is a descendant of Abraham. He's a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He is an, an original member of God's family, and he heard the gospel, and he understood the gospel, and he rejected the gospel initially, so much so that he was violently persecuting those who did believe. He was one of those who was made jealous and angry as God foretold through Moses in verse uh, 20 of chapter 10. If you're going to lock the door to your house on one of your children, maybe it should be your murderously oppressive son. Yet he doesn't. He doesn't lock that door. He reveals himself to Paul and he brings Paul back home. Okay, well maybe Paul is the one exception Maybe he's God's favorite, uh, whom he just can't reject or can't kick out. Well, this is not the case either. Paul cites a second example, and this is from Israel's history, which you can read about in chapter 16 through 19 of 1 Kings, and I encourage you to do that um, at, at your own time. But if you don't remember, this is during the time that King Ahab is ruling Israel. He, he's an evil king who ruled. He, his wife's name was uh, Jezebel. Do you guys remember Jezebel from the Bible? She's an awful woman uh, who is incredibly greedy. She's really manipulative, and, and she's incredibly murderous. And she also worshipped the pagan god Baal. And, and she absolutely hated God's people, and even more so, their god. And so as one of her first acts as like the first lady of Israel, she gathers together all of the Jewish, Jewish priests, and she has them murdered, straight up. And Jezebel then has Ahab um, establish the worship of Baal on a national level. And then they go around and they uh, uh, go around Israel and they're destroying the Jewish altars of worship and they're replacing them with shrines to Baal. And what proceeds from this time, it, it very tragically, is a season of national widespread apostasy within Israel. It, it is an anti-revival. It, it is a pandemic of, of unbelief throughout Israel. Like tens of thousands of people. God's children deny God. They leave his house and they turn their hearts to worship the false god Baal. So it's in the midst of this, all of this, that Elijah, God's prophet, cries out to God in prayer. And I want to take this to the original place where Paul cites this because it provides us a little bit more context. This is in 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 4. This should be on your screens. But he himself, this is speaking of Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. You jump down to verse 10. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Maybe you can relate to the deep discouragement of Elijah. 
The pain of seeing those whom you've shared fellowship with as believers walking away from the faith can be devastating. Even watching your brothers and sisters struggle and flounder in their faith can be traumatizing for you. For Elijah, the loss ran deep. Like everyone he knew, everyone he ever loved, everyone who ever sh- he shared a meal with has walked away from the God that he loves. And it's driven him into deep, deep sorrow. He wants to die. He's saying, God, it's enough. I can't take anymore. Take away my life. When people that we know walk away from the faith or they struggle hard in their faith, it can lead us into despair. It can make us doubt or at the very least question our own convictions and maybe even our own sanity. It can certainly be lonely and isolating. And Elijah, he he looks at his brothers and sisters who have all left God's family, and he says to God, I am the last one in this house, God. What are you doing? If you're a Christian and you haven't experienced someone you know who has walked away from the faith, or maybe uh, watching someone who you always thought was real solid in their faith, and, and now they're just being rocked, I hope you don't have this experience, but you most likely will. And if and when you do, and I know that there are people in this room right now who are actively experiencing this right now, I I want to encourage you to respond with humility and with faith, just like we see Elijah and Paul doing. The the humility we see in 1 Kings chapter 19, the second part of verse 10 there, um, Elijah doesn't shake his fist at God. He's not questioning the apostasy of his brothers and sisters as if it's God's fault that they have left him. But what does he do? He, He rightly acknowledges his own brokenness and his own sin. He says, I am no better than my father's. Elijah understands that he still has a lot in common with his brothers and sisters who have left the faith. The apostasy and the struggling of others should lead us to humility with thanksgiving because it's a reminder of God's grace in our lives as he continues to keep us and hold us. And this humility comes when we have the same realization that Elijah is having and having the same theology, which is that our salvation is by faith and not by our works. There is nothing better or greater in you as the believer as opposed to those who walk away from faith or who are struggling in faith. You need to know that. There is nothing for you to put your pride or your confidence in. You can't say, well, it's a good thing I read my Bible more, or it must be because I go to church more often than them, or man, I really owe it to going to that Bible study every week. Those are all really important aspects of what it looks like to walk in faith. But if you are a Christian today, Like, if you right now have your faith in Christ, it is because God is mercifully holding you fast. And if you wake up by the grace of God tomorrow morning, and you are a Christian tomorrow morning, it will be because God continues to mercifully hold you fast. Your contribution, if you want to call it that, is is your belief in the work of Christ. And even that is the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in you to produce that faith in God. But it was God who foreknew you. It was God who predestined you to be his beloved child. It, It was God who called you. It was God who justified you. And it will be God who glorifies you. Romans 8, verse 30. 
the apostasy of others should not lead us into despair and anger at God, but humility and thankfulness. It should also lead us into greater faith and trust in God. Elijah thinks that he's all alone, but look at what God actually reveals to him. In the second part of verse 4, I have kept for myself, this is in, uh, back in Romans uh, 11, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah wasn't the last one, even though he felt like he was. He had quit God was keeping a remnant of faithful people. The family was not completely broken up. And Paul is saying that God was doing the same thing in Paul's day. Look at verse 5 then. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So these examples of God not rejecting his people, even though... It looks like he has, so that's where Paul is coming from. That's Paul's experience. Or it might feel like God has. That's Elijah's experience. They both rest upon the logical truth that is sandwiched in the middle. In the middle. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Whom he foreknew. One of the powerful realities of the doctrine of election, we spent three sermons talking about this earlier on this year, but one of the, the beautiful realities of it is that God cannot reject those whom he has called. Now, this is hard for us to comprehend because we do this all the time. We do this all the time. We change our minds both with very minor and even very major things. But know this about God. When he chooses something, he follows through. He is not double-minded. God does not waver. He's never not 100%. If you're like at a restaurant with God, okay, and you're both looking at the menu, and you're like, God, what you think you're going to get, right? And he says, I'm going to have the steak fajitas, okay? When the server comes to take your order, guess what? He's going to order steak fajitas. I can't tell you how many times I've changed my order on the fly. Like, people are getting their orders, and I'm like, oh, I knew I was going to, I'm going to change it at the last minute. Like, and it's frustrating for Caitlin. She's rolling her eyes right now because she knows. Like, I, it's frustrating to her because, like, her order is based on my order of, of steak fajitas. But then when I change that to a chicken sandwich, like, it throws everything off, okay? God is not like me at a restaurant, and this is talking about food. The point that I'm trying to make is about God choosing people. And those whom he foreknew, meaning those whom he has chosen ahead of time, he has predestined. And those that he has predestined, he will call. And those whom he calls, he will justify. And those whom he justifies will be glorified. Again, Romans 8, verse 30. God has not rejected the Jews because amongst the Jews include those whom God has chosen. And God has not he will not, he cannot reject those whom he has call, called and chosen. If that is the case, how are we to understand what is happening then? I think that's a good question. Like, why is there widespread unbelief of the gospel amongst the Jews? Well, let's find out. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. 
And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The, the way that we are to understand what is happening to the Jews in this present time of Paul's writing is that there is a hardening, a, a blindness and a deafness which God has allowed on the people of Israel. You see this throughout the history of Israel. And many times where, where God is punishing and disciplining Israel for their disobedience. And, and when Israel says, um, we don't want you to be our God anymore, God. We, we don't want to do what you're asking us to do. We want to do things our way. We don't want to do things your way. And as a form of discipline, God takes a step back and he says, okay, okay. And he releases them to their sinful desires and their sinful pursuits. And, and what happens is that Israel becomes blind to the things of God. They become deaf to the things of God. They receive the spirit of stupor that's referenced here. In certain seasons, when Israel wanted nothing to do with God, God, God releases them to that. And he takes away their ability to see and to hear and to receive God's word. This is how Paul is explaining the unbelief of his Jewish brothers and sisters. Now, for us, there is a word of warning for us to be careful if we find ourselves not wanting to hear God's word or not wanting to see the things of God or what God is doing, and perhaps this looks like always choosing different forms of entertainment instead of reading God's word in our free time. Maybe it looks like seeking our own kingdom instead of God's kingdom. If we do this perpetually, God may, as he has with his beloved children, release us to our own desires. And we may, like the Jews, experience spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, a hardness of our hearts. And so may we learn from them instead, and may we remain devoted to the Lord in constant seeking of Him, and also a constant delight in Him above all other things. Verses 7 through 10 here, they help us understand why there is widespread unbelief amongst Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters, but what, if anything, is it all accomplishing? I think Paul gets to this in verse 11, starting in verse 11. This is a bigger chunk of text we're going to walk through. It starts like this. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. So pause here for a second. Paul is asking, is this stumbling that Israel is experiencing, as they've stumbled over grace in their pursuit of God, is this leading to their permanent and final falling, where they are spiritually unable to repent and get back up? And Paul's answer is, by no means, absolutely not, okay? Continuing on, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Pause there. What Paul is saying is that God, as a, in his sovereign response to Israel's hardness, what he's done is he has made the gospel and salvation available to all people, not just the Jews. And the purpose of this was to make Israel jealous so that they would return back to him. But you have to remember that at the same time, that is a blessing to all people. 
So Paul points out, look, if God is blessing the world as much as he is through Israel's failure, imagine how much more beautiful and complete the picture is going to be when God's people return home. In verse 13, after this, Paul shifts his focus a little bit. He says this, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So Paul turns his attention to the Gentiles in Rome here to help them understand where he's coming from. Paul is an apostle who has been specifically charged by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, not the Jews. This is completely counterintuitive if you know anything about Paul. Paul, again, is a Jew of Jews. He knows all of the Jewish laws and traditions through and through. He, he religiously is a Pharisee, which means that this would have given him a natural sense of authority to teach and instruct and to minister to the Jews. If there was ever a team captain for the Jewish people during the first century, it would have been Paul. But God, in his beautiful and sometimes very peculiar sovereignty, ships Paul out to reach the Gentiles. And this is a world that, quite honestly, Paul knows very little about comparative to his experience in his, with his people. Why does this happen? And Paul says it right here in verse 14. In order, somehow, to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So Paul, devoting his life to ministering to the Gentiles, would have been received by the Jews as their beloved all-star joining the rival team. That's how it would have been received. It's kind of like if, if you're like a New England native, okay, I'm going like to use some sports metaphors here. Like if David Ortiz, big poppy, of the Red Sox, if he signed a contract like at the end of his career to go play with the Yankees, we'd be like, What's, what is this, right? Maybe if instead of Brady signing with Tampa Bay, if he went to like the Giants at the end of his career, like it would have invoked in, in, in a lot of New Englanders, some New Englanders, this, the, a feeling similar to what Paul's dedication to the Gentiles would have felt like for the Jews. But the purpose of all this is for the ensuing jealousy to somehow bring about faith in the Jews and to bring them back home. Let's read on. And remember, Paul is still speaking to the Gentiles in Rome. Verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supported the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. 
For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul uses a an agricultural metaphor here to help the Gentiles understand their place within God's family. I don't think many of us here are olive farmers. I could be wrong, but here's what you need to know. Olive trees are incredibly hardy. They're hardy trees. Some of the hardiest trees there are. Their roots sink down exceptionally deep. They can live for three to four hundred years. And what's really cool about olive trees, and this is still practiced today, if branches have broken off, due to storms or any type of other damage, what you can do is you can take a branch from a different olive tree and, and you can stick it onto the, the olive root, the, 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 the trunk of the olive tree. I think it's more sophisticated than what I'm showing you right now, but they kind of stick it in there and I think they probably like tape it up or something like that. And what happens, this is called grafting, what happens is if the root of that olive tree is healthy, then the sap and the nutrients will flow into this branch, and it will become a part of the olive tree. And that branch, which was a part of a different plant altogether, will flourish. It will bear fruit. It is now actually a part of that olive tree. Now, Paul uses this image to help us understand that those who are not ethnically Jewish, the, the, the relationship uh, looks like this, with God's family. So again, Christianity wasn't just invented when Jesus came. It, it didn't originate with us. It was originally made up of the people whom God chose back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And within the nation of Israel exists the core, the, the root of this olive tree. And, and we as Gentiles have been grafted in wild olive shoots, just kind of hanging out up there. God has grafted us into the healthy core, and now we are becoming nourished and are alive by it. Now, this reality should obliterate any sense of anti-Semitism in Christians, okay? Paul exhorts the Gentiles in Rome to remain humble. Verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. So this is a little pointed here. He says it because it's possible that the Gentiles, after hearing about the unbelief of the Jews, even having experienced some of the persecution from the Jews by those who were like Paul before Paul had his eyes open and his heart softened to the gospel, it's probable that there is some tension between the Gentiles and the Jews. And it's possible that there would be some prideful responses toward the Jews, both Jews inside the church and outside the church. But Paul is swift to remind the Gentiles that, hey, Gentile, you are a branch. <laughs> you have been grafted in. And, and it is the root, the core of God's ethnically Jewish family, which feeds and sustains and nourishes those branches. It is not the other way around. So for us, what does that mean for us practically? There ought to be a softness and a humility in our heart toward the Jewish people in our lives. There should be. If Paul is tender toward them while they are persecuting Christians, how much more ought we now? The Jews are God's original children, and, and we as Christians have been grafted in. If that is our reality, we must remember that. Paul gives us some hope for the situation and turns the final corner in chapter 11. So look at verse 23. 
And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. This is speaking of the Jews. For God has the power to graft them in again. Like, what grace! What God is saying here is that the door is still wide open for his people to come home. He hasn't rejected them. They, they haven't fallen so hard that they can't get back up on their feet. Their hearts might be hard. Their eyes might be blind. Their ears might be deaf. They might be dead branches on the ground, but God has the power to graft them back in again because God can bring dead things back to life. The, the power of God's salvation should never cease to amaze us, Mercy House. We should never get used to the resurrection of dead people coming back to life in new life in Christ. That's what happens when someone becomes a Christian. And Paul says this, and it's like, duh. Of course this makes sense. Like Based on what we know about God, of course he wouldn't turn his back on his people. Of course he wouldn't slam the door shut. Of course he's powerful enough to bring believing Jews back to faith because he's done it with us has he not so never forget god's supernatural and miraculous work in you a work that brought a hard-hearted blind deaf dry brittle dead branch back to life we must praise god for what he's done in our lives amen as we get to verses 25 to 27 what you need to know is that these are some of the most controversial verses in Romans for biblical scholars. Let's read them, and I'll show you why. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come to Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul says, I want to explain something to you. The way that Paul uses the word mystery there is to mean something which has formerly been hidden, which is now revealed by God. And so this mystery that he wants to reveal and make known to the Romans is this. Verse 25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. This is controversial as it relates to the future of God's ethnic people, the Jews. What it appears to say at first glance is that the hardening of the Jews, which Paul is seeing in his day, is, is there until the fullness of Gentiles has been brought into the family, have, have been grafted into the family. So there is a finite number. That's what the implication is. No, none of what I just said is the controversial part. The controversial part is this. Once that is done, and I'm quoting verse 26 here, all Israel will be saved. Okay? Some people interpret this to mean that at some point in the future, once the fullness of God's elect have been brought into God's family, God will do something, somehow, where each and every ethnic Jew throughout all time will be saved. Now, how God would do that, we can only speculate. This is not mentioned anywhere in Scripture. That is one way to read what is written here. Others will read this. And they understand the reference to Israel as more of a spiritual Israel. So not an ethnic Israel. 
So those of us who are believers, we're part of spiritual Israel. That is actually what we have been grafted into. So the first part in verse 26 would mean that God will save all those who have been justified by faith, including Jews and Gentiles. So that's a, that, that kind of like ties it up neat, neatly and nicely. There's a problem with reading it like this, though, because since chapter 8, Paul has been talking about ethnic Israel. So every time he's mentioned Israel, he's not talking about like a spiritual Israel. He's talking about those who are ethnically Jewish, those who have descended from Abraham. So I just, made, I just muddied the waters for you, okay? I personally believe that the best way to read this, given that Paul is talking about ethnic Israel, is to acknowledge that God is going to do something pretty incredible at the end of time with his chosen ethnic people, the Jews. I do not take this to mean that all, I, I don't take where it says all Israel to be saved to mean that each and every Jew ever is going to be saved. That's not how the word all is often used in the Bible. It's much more of an, uh, a broad all. And it also goes against Paul's point that not all those who have descended from Israel are Israel. So this is when we were talking in the first sermon, chapter 9. So I take this to mean that once all of God's elect from among the nations, the Gentiles, are grafted in, God will work some sort of revival to bring his elect from among the ethnic Jews that are alive and present back home. I think that's what's going to happen. So if you see a massive revival of ethnic Jews, I think it means that Jesus is right around the corner, because that's like the end of days. Now, if you want to talk more about end times... <laughs> If you want to learn more about end times, I do encourage you to, to read uh, Luke 21, Matthew 24, and Mark 13. So Luke 21, Matthew 24, and Mark 13 to hear what Jesus himself has to say about it first before you go like on YouTube and ask like, what's the end of, of the world going to look like, okay? So where we land on our interpretation of this passage um, is what I would call like an open-handed issue. This is a great example of an open-handed issue. It, it is not salvific, meaning that our salvation is not on the line depending on where we land, on what God's plans are for his, uh, his people in the future. So I would encourage you, study it and let me know what you think. All right, let's read these last verses and then we're going to finish up for the day. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul begins this final section with a sigh, or what commentators call a holy groan. That's the O at the beginning. What Paul does in these final verses is he's recentering his focus. He's recentering the Romans' focus. He's recentering our focus back on the character and nature of God. It is possible that when we dive academically into the Bible and we begin talking about what God has done and what he will do and when we stretch ourselves and our knowledge to places where our footing is not as solid, um, our understanding is not as firm, we can lose sight of God in that pursuit. 
the intellectual exercise itself, and then the issues at hand and the controversies and the arguments, they can all take our attention. They can take our focus. They can take our zeal and our passion. And we forget the purpose of all of this thinking and all of this learning, which is to bring us closer to God, to know God better. Paul reminds us very soberly that we won't be able to figure God out. There's only so much that we as finite creatures can comprehend about our infinite God. There are parts that are still mysterious, still hidden and unknown. But what we do know, at least about God's heart toward the Jewish people, is that God has always loved them. He continues to love them to this day, and his arms are continually outstretched, waiting for them to come home. If you are not a Christian, or if you sense in yourself a hard heart this morning, or blind eyes, or deaf, dull ears, God's arms are open to you this morning. It, it doesn't matter how spiritually dry you are, how brittle you feel your faith is. Remember that God has the power to bring dead things back to life. If that's you this morning, run to the open arms of our Father. There are many things we don't know. But one thing we know for certain is this. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. The covenant that God made with his people has been extended to you. The table that was initially set for Israel is open to you and to me. Never forget what Christ has done so that we may be grafted into his eternal family. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of all creation. Lord, we thank you that your arms are wide open, that you are gracious and merciful. Lord, we pray for our Jewish brothers and sisters who are not home. Father, we, we confess that politically, practically, socially, some of this is challenging. Some of this is complex, God. Help us at the very least to understand your heart for your people, God. And Lord, we pray that there would be a softening, God. Would you allow that softening to happen, that you would unblock ears and allow those who are ethnically your people to come back to you? And God, may you use us toward these ends, God. Help us to see, God, and translate your behavior and your heart toward your people and see how you interact with us, Lord. Thank you for grafting us into your family. Thank you for adopting us as sons and daughters, Lord. Father, we pray that you would help us um, to continually seek after you, God. We pray that you would continue to mercifully hold us fast in our faith. God, we confess that we are broken. We are sinful. Oftentimes, we will shake our fist at you in anger. We will say we don't want anything to do with you. Lord, we pray that you would continue to be slow to anger, Father. 
and that you would continue to be merciful and gracious to us. Lord, help us to do the same for our brothers and sisters. Help us to uh, fight for and to love our brothers and sisters who are struggling in their faith, God. Let it not lead us into despair. Even those who have left the faith, Lord, I pray that that would not lead us into the same place where Elijah was at. But Lord, help us to have faith in you, God. You will preserve your remnant. That is what we see throughout the whole Bible. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to unfold your plan for us, for all of humanity. God, we love you, and we trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.